Church, how are we this morning? Good. I'm Harley Rathel. I am the campus pastor of the yet-to-be-launched Butikyle Campus of Bannockburn Church. And uh, it's exciting, yeah. A couple of observations as I get going. I kind of, as I walk in, I get this cool view of what's going on in this room this morning. A few things I observed walking in. One is we have kids in here with us. That's cool, right? Yes. Kids, we're glad that you're here with us. Secondly, I loved looking out and seeing people wiping tears off their face, like good tears. Um, it's beautiful to see that God's already work in this room. The third thing is, it's cool to see men in aprons. I'm like excited about what that means, okay? So I promise I won't go too long. I know we're all hungry, but this is an important moment. And, and to that end, this is an opportunity for me to just share a little bit about what's going on with Butikyle Campus before we jump into God's work word together today. And so I just want to let you know that things are progressing. We're making some good progress on this. I say that weird, don't I? Progress um, towards the launch of this campus. And we've been having a couple of test gatherings, which have gone well. We've got some social gatherings that we're doing once a month. And if I haven't had a chance to connect with you yet, and you live in the Butikyle area, I would love to have that opportunity. Don't feel bashful. Feel like you can come up to me Put out your hand and introduce yourself. I'd love to get to meet you. There's a few things I'd like to ask of all of us, though, when it comes to this new campus. The first thing I'd like to ask is that you would join in prayer. This is, I believe, a work of God. We're wanting to see Him move. We're wanting to see His Spirit move on in and amongst this church family. As we expand out, it's about expanding God's kingdom. Not the name of Bannockburn, but the name of Jesus. And so I want to ask you to pray that God would move. There's a lot of things to figure out. We're figuring out staffing, location, all of these uh, teams of volunteers, all of this stuff that we've got to figure out. So please pray for us. When you think of us, pray for us. Secondly, I want to ask you to invite people. All of you, I'm going to assume most of you at least, have connections in the Butikyle area with people maybe you work with, family members, friends that you know. And so if you have some sort of connection in the Butikyle area, I would encourage you to invite them to come along and to participate. Just a few weeks ago, I got lunch with a guy who's a part of our church family, and his story was awesome. I loved hearing it. And as he was sharing his story, one of the things he told me was he was at a very dark and low moment in his life. And a neighbor came up to him and just said to him, hey, you look really sad tell me about what's going on. And they started to converse. And this guy was invited by this neighbor to come along to church and his life was completely changed. And I was reminded in that small story of how significant just an invite, just noticing can be. And some of you have people that you know that you could invite to be a part of this new campus. And so the invitation is to invite, to pray and to invite. And to that end, I'm gonna pray right now. I'm going to pray for this new campus, and I'm going to pray over our time together looking into God's Word. So I'm going to invite you to bow your heads one more time as we pray. God, as we pause, we just want to acknowledge again that you are a good God. We thank you for what's been happening in this service this morning. We thank you for this baptism that reminds us that you are a God who brings about change. And God, this church is about to go through the change of planting this new campus. 
And Lord, we're asking for your favor and your blessing upon that. We thank you that you hear us this morning. Continue to stir our hearts in prayer for this campus. And God, may we take some ownership, some personal responsibility, God, with the people that we know that live in the Butikail area. God, help us to invite. Help us to share. And even people that aren't in the area, God, we pray that our faith would be real. That it would be living and active, even in the seasons of life that are difficult And Lord, as we look at your word this morning and as we look at people who are going through a difficult section of life in your word, I pray that you would speak to us from this text. God, please, in these next moments, take away distractions and help us to hear from you. We thank you that you're here. We thank you that you're at work. Amen. Have you ever experienced a time in your life where God felt like he was absent or maybe silent? Maybe in that moment you felt like you've called up to heaven and for whatever reason, God has stepped away from his desk. By the way, God doesn't sit at a desk that he steps away from from time to time, but it can feel like that at times. It's like a moment where you've called up to heaven and you can't get a hold of God. Heaven is silent in that moment. As I've been thinking about these moments in our life that sometimes this happens, I was thinking, okay, what sort of analogy pictures that? And, and the analogy that I came up with was that of being on hold on the telephone. I'm going to venture a guess that you don't like that as much as I don't like that. When you call up a company to try and get a hold of something, to figure something out, maybe your internet or your phone service, I don't know, like some sort of company, and you're placed on hold. To me, it seems like some companies have done research into what is the most annoying music that they can play while that's going. And then they will loop that music and play it at a level where it's distorted. And you're there on the phone thinking, man, my goodness, this is not fun. Other companies seem to like to just play with you, mess with you, and they don't do anything. You're on hold, but it's silent. And you're like, okay, am I disconnected? Like, what's going on here? And then all of a sudden, somebody breaks in. Thank you for your patience. You know, like, and and this continues on. If you're anything like me, that drives me crazy. And yet, as I read this beautiful book, what I see is I go from cover to cover is that it's pretty normative for the people in this book to go through seasons of life where it would seem that God is on hold. There are years and decades and even centuries where God seems to, in His Word, go inactive. And in these moments, it feels like His status is somehow turned to offline mode. And when this happens, questions start to arise. Is God absent? Is God punishing us for for something that we've done? Is He giving us the silent treatment? Is God scrambling to hold things together and we're just too far down His list? He might get to us eventually, but we're way too far down the list. As I list out some of these questions, maybe you can identify with some of those. And if you can, I believe that you're going to identify and connect with the people in the Bible that we're going to be looking at today. 
as we launch into this new series today, studying the book of Esther. And so I'd like to invite you, if you have a Bible or a digital Bible, to grab that and to open to the book of Esther. And as you're doing that, I'd like to give you a little bit of context and history for this book. As I'm setting up this whole series of where we're going to be the next few weeks, a little bit of context and history is a good thing. The story picks up in Esther chapter 1 in a city called Susa. And we can believe that this is one of the capitals of the great Persian Empire. And if you're interested in geography, that's in modern day southwestern Iran. And so Susa is where the story is set. And here we find the king of the Persian Empire, whose name I hate pronouncing. It's Ahasuerus. That's his Hebrew name. But you may know him by his Greek name, which is Xerxes. He's a very powerful man, arguably the most powerful man in the world at that time. And he is throwing himself and his friends an extravagant party. If you read through the first chapter of Esther, what you find is detailed description of this party. And I say extravagant because this party is going on for, wait for it, 180 days. This is a mega party, okay? And so as this is going on, this party is going on, I'll say party if that helps. I know that party is how that sounds when I say that, so I can try and Americanize. But this, as this, I won't do that. As this party goes on, all of a sudden the king decides, as he's been drinking a lot, that it would be a great idea to bring out the queen and parade her and her beauty in front of all his guests. And so he sends a request for Queen Vashti to come. And she refuses. He gets mad and he decides with his friends there at the party that she's no longer going to be the queen. And so he takes her crown, he takes her title and, and moves her on out and away, never to be seen again. And we move from here into chapter 2 of the book of Esther. As we do that, we need to actually make a quick pause and to take a note that from what the Bible, the clues that the Bible gives us, we can believe that actually about four years transpire between Esther 1 and Esther chapter 2. And there's two reasons I want to draw your attention to that. One is, when we read Esther and other books of the Bible, we often read them as a very flat, linear narrative. And yet when we start to understand, hey, there's four years that go on here, it actually gives some depth, some contours to the story it helps us to understand the passing of time. The second reason is, when we see this, it sometimes helps us to see how the Bible and history intersect with one another. And when that happens, it actually stirs in us some amplifying belief in what God is doing and what's happening when we see the history of this scenario mixed with the Scriptures. And so what we can believe is that during these four years, there was a very famous ancient war that occurred. That King Ahasuerus goes off to war after he gets rid of the queen. And this war is called the Second Persian Invasion of Greece. And he doesn't succeed. He's still powerful. He's still ruling the Persian Empire. But the king in Esther chapter 2 is different from the king in Esther 1 in that he has been defeated. And that helps us to understand his character a little bit more because it seems 
like he's got his tail between his legs a little bit as we read. It says in verse 1 of chapter 2, if you'll read with me. Sometime later, when King Ahasuerus' rage had cooled down, he remembered Vashti, what she had done, and what was decided against her. The king's personal attendant suggested, let a search be made for beautiful young women for the king. If you read on these next verses, what you come to discover is that these servants are proposing that they have an ancient, uh, an epic ancient beauty pageant. I mean, we have beauty pageants, you know, things like Miss America and all that sort of stuff. And we have all these things in our current culture where we try to find the best of the best, right? Like we have American Idol or we have America's Got Talent. This is the ancient equivalent of that. Like if I was trying to think of a cheesy name, it might be like Quest for a Queen or something like that, right? They're trying to find a queen for the king. And that's exactly what the winner is going to get. They're going to get to sit next to the most powerful man in the world. Yes, he's been defeated, but he's still the ruler of the Persian Empire. And so Esther is about to be entered into this contest. But we haven't met her yet. As we read actually down into verse 5, we're introduced to Esther and her cousin, the main characters of this story. And so read with me what it says in verse 5. It says this, In the fortress of Susa, there was a Jewish man named Mordecai, son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite. He had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the other captives when King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon took King Jeconiah of Judah into exile. Mordecai was the legal guardian of his cousin, Hadassah, that is Esther, because she didn't have a father or mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was extremely good looking. When her father and mother died, Mordecai had adopted her as his own daughter. So we're introduced to Mordecai. And what we learn amongst all the big names, and they're important, a little bit clunky to read, but they're important because what we learn is that he is a Jew with a very strong Jewish lineage. And that's important because it also tells us that he, or at least his family, had been taken during the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian. And when it gives us these details, what it helps us to know is that we know exactly when this exile took place. It took place in 597 BC. And that is an important detail because what we can deduct is that this story, Esther chapter 2, is happening over 110 years after that exile. And so what that means is Mordecai wasn't personally taken. What that means is that exile, being in a foreign country where he doesn't belong, is all that Mordecai has ever known. And it's all that Esther has ever known. What do we learn about Esther? Well, we learn she's a Jew living in exile, yes, but she's also young, she's also beautiful, and she's an orphan. She's been adopted by her older cousin Mordecai. I, I don't know if you noticed there in verse 7, or the, the last part of verse 7, it's actually quite a sweet verse. It says, when her father and mother died, Mordecai had adopted her, and it doesn't just end there, it says this, as his own daughter. There's some sort of love and connection going on here. And in fact, if you read on to verse 11, it tells us that as Esther is entered into this contest and taken into the king's custody, 
that he goes and checks on her every day. There's this love and connection. And so when we read the story of Esther, we often focus on that. We focus on these things. We think, well, how sweet. Esther had Mordecai. That's nice. And we think, well, it's nice that she was young. It's nice that she was beautiful. But I want for us to really put ourselves in Esther and the people, the Jewish people there in Susa's shoes to understand a little bit of their lives and understand that life was actually pretty bleak for them. Esther's parents are dead. That's hard. And also, she, along with the Jewish community there, have a number of tough things that they're dealing with. Firstly, they're a long way from their homeland. They've probably never seen Jerusalem. They know they're Jewish, but they've never seen Jerusalem. They're refugees, transferred from one brutal empire to the other. They've been taken by King Nebuchadnezzar, and then his kingdom's been taken over by the Persians. They've just been bounced around as refugees. Secondly, they're viewed with contempt by those around them. How do we know that they were viewed by, with contempt by those around them? Well, look at verse 10. It tells us that Esther did not reveal her ethnic background or her birthplace because Mordecai had heard, ordered her not to. It wasn't to her advantage to be like, hey, I'm a Jew. If you go on into the next chapters, what we discover is there's a group of people who dislike the Jews. And their ringleader is a guy who's about to rise to power. And he's going to try and annihilate all of them. And so they're not viewed favorably at all. The third thing is, there is this seeming failure to these Jews living in Susa of the promises of God. These Jews know their lineage. They know their ancestry. They know that they can trace back their line to Abraham. And they know that Abraham had the promises of God given to him. That through him that there would be descendants that would bless the earth. And they're looking at it and being like, I'm not seeing that. They also know that King David is one of their ancestors. And that God specifically promised him that one of David's descendants would be king and rule for eternity. And they're looking and they're like, we don't even have Jerusalem, let alone a throne and a king. God's promises would have felt like they had completely failed to them. And so the conclusion I believe that we must come to is that the Jews living in exile must have felt forgotten by God. As I say that, I'm going to assume that most, if not all of you, can identify with seasons in your life where you've felt forgotten by God. I mean, if I was doing a raising of hands, my hand would be up. There have been windows of time in my life. As I was preparing and just thinking about that, there were two windows of time that came to mind specifically. One of those was right after college. I remember I kind of had laid down my life and said, God, I want to do whatever you want me to do. And where I found myself was digging ditches for my uncle. Wondering, God, what, what on earth am I doing here? I'm, I'm wanting to open up my life to you, and yet you feel like you're completely silent. If I was to describe that period of my life to someone, it felt like a wilderness experience in my life. I shared several weeks ago that there was a moment more recently during COVID where we had just moved our family to go and help a church in Scotland. We'd packed up everything. We'd, we'd sacrificed for God. 
and we'd gone and, and COVID had hit and all our expectations seemed to be thrown out the window and we, were, we felt trapped there in a way, wondering, God, what are you up to? What are you doing? When these moments occur in our lives, we ask questions like, where is God? What am I supposed to do? Does God see? Does God care about my situation? These are the moments where God feels like He's placed us on hold. And so as we're kind of dancing around this, as we're looking at the context and what it must have been like for these people, as we're thinking about God putting us on hold, I think there's a question that we're dancing around that we need to tackle head on. And maybe it's an overly simple question, but I think it's an important one. And that is, is it possible to be forgotten by God? If we feel like we're forgotten by God, is that even possible? If I was to do a quick survey of this beautiful resource that we're given, God's Word, the answer that I would come back with to that question is an emphatic no. The Scripture tells us that there is no place, that there is no time in our lives that God has ever abandoned us. Like that's just not possible because what God tells us about Himself is that He is all-knowing that He is all-seeing, that He is all-present. And as I list those things out, if you're anything like me, you're like, oh man, that hurts my brain. Like how is that possible that God can be in every part of the universe at once? If you struggle to believe that, I want to ask you, I want to give you actually some homework. Some of you are like, didn't school just finish? Uh, I want to give you some homework. I want to encourage you to put a reminder in your phone or to text yourself Psalm 139. In the next 24 hours, I want to ask you to read Psalm 139. I think this would be really good activity for your heart. Maybe my suggestion would be as you're going to bed this evening, read Psalm 139 and reflect on what it says because what it's going to tell you is there is nowhere and no when where God is not present. Earlier in our service, right at the beginning, Casey read Psalm 46, which is another psalm that speaks to this. In verse 1, it tells us God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Not sometimes present, not occasionally present. No, He's ever-present. It is not possible to be forgotten by God. If we come back to the story of Esther, I want you to note with me that God is present and is at work. I want to continue to look at this question of is it possible to be forgotten by God by looking at Esther's story and see what we see there. And what we see as we read along as this contest takes place is that God is starting to do some work that we're starting to see His hand in. Look at verse 15. It tells us this, or the second part of verse 15. Last sentence. Esther won approval in the sight of everyone who saw her. God's starting to work. Actually, he's already been at work. Read on in verse 17. It says, the king loved Esther more than all the other women. She won more favor and approval from him than did any of the other young women. He placed the royal crown on her head and made her queen in the place of Vashti. Esther won. 
She won the contest. And I'm sure there was plenty of contestants. I'm sure that Esther and Mordecai were like, what? You know, like, this is crazy. This is happening. Kind of pinching themselves. They had no idea, all of the Jews who knew Esther and had grown up with her, they had no idea that God was actually setting her up for something much bigger than being the queen. He was setting her up to save his people. We're going to talk about that in the coming weeks. But this winning of this context, contest is just a small indicator that God is already up to something big. And a reminder that God has already been at work for years in setting this up. I mean, just pause and consider what's going on here. What that means, if she's winning this contest, I believe that means that God was at work back when that party was going on. And it also means that God is at work when the queen was, the old queen was rejected. God was at work when the king started to wonder if he should find a new queen. And as this contest took place and Esther just happens to be at the right place at the right time, God is at work in all of these things. It isn't just happenstance. This is the providential, divine working of God. You see, even when we don't see it or feel it, God, who is a good God, is doing a good work. One of the curious facts about this book of Esther is that God's name doesn't appear once in the whole book. Why would that be? It's a nod to the fact that even when God is not clearly visible, He is at work. God's name may not appear in these 10 chapters, but His fingerprints are certainly all over them. Right here, even in this story. Just a couple of weeks ago, Pastor Key and I were having some dialogue on this passage and these opening chapters. And later on, he sent me a text, and I could tell he'd been thinking about this passage And he sent me a text with one sentence that I want to read you. He said this, most of God's works and ways are ordinary. That's a great point. God's at work in what we think are just details in this story, but God's at work in those things. We often are looking for God to be at work in the spectacular. We're like, okay, where's the writing on the wall? Where's the bolt of lightning? Where's the the vision, the dream, the, the parting of the wet Red Sea? God certainly does all of those things. But by and large, the bulk of His activity is accomplished in things that we label, not Him, but we label as mundane. God is always at work in all things. That means that God is at work. This is a bit of a crazy thought, but God is at work when you're sitting in traffic. God is at work when your hands are full at the grocery store and you bump into that neighbor that you haven't seen for a long time. God is at work when you sit down at the desk at the job that you feel like is a dead-end job. God is at work when you pray and it feels like your prayers get about as high as the sheetrock on the ceiling and then fall back down to the ground. God is at work in all places and all times, even when it feels like He is silent. To that end, I want to ask you, have you ever stopped to consider that Jesus knows what it feels like 
to experience the silence of God. If we fast forward from here where we're looking in the book of Esther up into the time of Christ. And if you picture with me Jesus hanging on that cross, I want you to do that. What has he experienced up to that moment? Well, he's experienced a lot of physical pain, right? He's been beaten and whipped and and pierced and hung on that tree to die. But what we can understand from the scriptures or at least start to understand is that there's even more pain being experienced on a spiritual level by Jesus in this moment. Because as he is hanging there, God is allowing the sins of the world from all of history to be placed on his shoulders. The sins we have committed in every generation before us, they have been placed onto him. And as he bears the sins that we have committed, God the Father has to turn away, has to look away, because he is holy and pure and cannot be with sin. And so for the first time in history, there is this tearing between God the Father and God the Son. And this is causing great anguish and great pain. As Jesus is there on the cross, what does he cry out? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there's no answer. Just silence. And Jesus dies. And through that death, he secures our forgiveness. He beats sin. He beats death. He is raised to life again. And we celebrate that. And as we should. It's a beautiful reality. But I want for us to think about this pain, this separation, this moment. Because often when we think about the cross, we just think about the victory. But the fact of the matter is this. Jesus experienced the silence that we deserve. The silence of God so that we don't have to. For those of us who believe in Jesus, who have experienced the forgiveness of sins that comes through Him, God has told us that He will never leave us or forsake us because He left and forsook His Son. There's a retired pastor up in the New York area, Tim Keller, who puts it very beautifully. I want to read for you what he says about this. He says, we know that God will answer us when we call, my God, because God did not answer Jesus when he made the same petition on the cross. Jesus got the great silence so we could know that God hears and answers. The ultimate proof that we are loved and not forgotten is the cross. It is the ultimate proof that we are loved and not forgotten. As we've gone through this time together today, we've, we've thought about this analogy of a phone and being on hold. And as we just consider, okay, what, what is God saying to us specifically here today? For some of you, I want to ask Is God feeling silent because you've actually never been connected to Him? Are you completely disconnected? Do you know this God? Do you know His saving power? Are you disconnected from God? There is only one way to be connected with God. There isn't multiple avenues to this God. 
to this saving faith, it is one way, it is through Jesus. But he accepts calls from all types. It doesn't matter who you are or where you've been. And so I want to encourage you today with these words. Are you connected with God or are you disconnected? And if you're disconnected, come and talk to me. After the service, talk to Pastor Casey. We'd love to have a conversation with you about what it means to be connected with God, to experience all that we celebrated a few moments ago in baptism. For others of you, maybe you know this Jesus. You would say, I'm a Christian. I believe my sins have been forgiven. I know this Jesus, but it feels like God is silent right now. I have two questions specifically for you. One is this, how have you positioned yourself to hear from God? In my experience, I've observed that some people are like, I I can't hear from God, and yet when you dig into it, they're pulling away from Christian community, and they're pulling away from the reading of Scripture, and they're pulling away from prayer. And these are all means by which God speaks to us. That's a little bit like being on hold and turning the phone volume all the way down. God's may be silent just because of how you've positioned yourself. You're not in fellowship with other believers. You're not reading God's Word. You're not in prayer. These are means by which God speaks to us. Others of you may say, well, you know what? I am eager to hear from God. I have positioned myself to hear from Him, and yet it still feels like He's silent. My question to you specifically would be, are you willing to trust and obey in the midst of what feels like silence from God. I believe that that's the example given to us by Esther and even by Christ. Trusting and obeying, being faithful in the midst of what may feel like quietness from God. Are you willing to do that? Finally, some of you may be sitting there and you're like, I'm not struggling with this. Life's good. Everything's clicking along on all cylinders. If that's you, that's great. But I want you to consider this. How are you going to help? How are you going to counsel those around you who are disconnected or feel like God is silent? You and I can be advocates for the truths that we've been talking about here today. We can remind those around us. In fact, I have somebody in my life that I love that I believe is disconnecting from God because they feel like God is silent, wasn't there when He needed them. And I'm reminded today that I need to be praying for them and reaching out to them and reminding them that God is there, that He loves them, that He hasn't forgotten them. We are called to be the hands and feet of Jesus. And so in these these questions, there's a response, I believe, for all of us. What is it for you today? You're going to have some time to reflect on that as we sing. But I just finally want to ask you, or remind you, rather, with this last statement. God sees you. God loves you. God has not forgotten you. May you and may I truly believe that today. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are a God who cares, that you are a God who sees, and not just sees most things, you see everything, the good, the bad, and the ugly. God, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you sent Jesus 
to experience that agonizing silence on our behalf so that we don't have to. God, I pray that as we consider what it is that you're saying to us through Esther and through our time together this morning, I pray that you would help us to know how to respond appropriately. God, we need your help. We need your guidance. Thank you for this moment. Continue to speak, continue to move in this room. Thank you. Amen. I'd like to invite you to stand. We're going to sing. And as we sing, I do encourage you to reflect on these things that we've been talking about.